0: Welcome to the fourth episode of Climate on Air, discussing the future of EU climate policy. I'm Aaron Best, Senior Fellow at Ecologic Institute.
1: And I'm Bradley Martsagala from the University of Eastern Finland's Center for Climate Change, Energy and Environmental Law. Today we're discussing the investment challenge, which is fundamental to mobilize financial resources for the transformation to climate neutrality. In the previous episodes of Climate on Air, we have discussed what is transformative climate policy and identified four key challenges on the way towards the transformation to climate neutrality. Today, we're going to discuss how climate concerns should and could be considered in the operations of financial regulators.
0: Today, we have two investment and finance experts in the studio with us, Julie Evan and Thomas peller from the Institute for Climate Economics. Julie is a research fellow at the Institute for Climate Economics and works on the integration of climate change issues into regulation and supervision of banks and financial markets. Thomas is director of I4CE's EU program and specializes in climate investments and clean tech. Welcome Julie and Thomas. Hi. Hello. Good afternoon. To warm up a bit, let's start with your general view regarding what kind of roles investment and finance play in tackling climate change. Uh, Tomal, let's start with you.
2: Well, actually, a lot of the things we need to do in order to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is actually linked to investment. So if you, for instance, start to renovate your home, you're quite certain that as a result of that renovation, your home will consume less energy and that will lead to less greenhouse gas emissions, not only for the next year, but most likely for the next 20, 30, 40 years. So therefore, the investment that we make today lock us in into a specific future, which could be a green future. If you see a lot of green investments on heat pump, electric cars, home renovation, but it can also be a dirty energy future, a fossil fuel future, a future with a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. If today you invest in buying a new petrol car, if today you invest in buying a new gas boiler. And what we see currently is that We have a lot of investments going in the right direction, so climate investments, but we also have a lot of so-called brown investments, those investments that are made today into equipment that lock us in a future where we continue to emit a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. And so therefore, one can approach the issue of climate change through that lens of investments, looking at how we can maximize green investments to have as many reductions of emissions as possible, and also how we can reduce as much as we can brand investments, investment in fossil fuels, because a genuine transition is not only to do more green, is to do green stuff that substitutes services that are currently driven by brand projects. Julie?
3: Yes, to meet all the investments needs, um, as Thomas explained, we really think that uh, the financial players, they have a key role to play, of course, both to meet the investment need and to fill what we call the this financial gap and we know that this financial gap is account for, for billions. And the good news is that we have them. The problem is that we really need to reorient them towards the right project, as uh, Thomas was explaining. And what we also know is that the public funds won't be enough to finance the transition. And that's why we focus at the I4C on private actors, because what is interesting with uh, financial actors, both banks and financial market, is that they cover all the aspects of the financing, from the grassroots innovation. And here I'm thinking about uh, clean energy, about clean tech, about deep innovation, but also they have a role to play in transforming the very large company. We often talk about the oil company, but it's actually much larger. Uh, We can think about uh, agri-food companies or chemical industries, for instance. And of course, the banks, they have... um, an essential role to play in supporting the transition of the individual for the credit they grant, either for the house renovation and also for the cars because we know that the transition to uh, electric cars is essential.
1: Thank you both. There's so much to cover here. I'm keen to learn more about the direction that investment in climate should be taking and also what kinds of actions that the financial players should be undertaking.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how Investment steers this possible future, as you said, Thomas, to a green or a brown future. And uh, there's billions here at stake. So very interesting.
1: So just to set the scene, how should we approach investment and in finance in the context of transformative climate policy? In previous episodes of Climate on Air, we've discussed how there's still a lot to be done to reach climate neutrality by 2050.
0: Yes. Why is investment such an essential element of this transformative climate change
3: the role of bank in the eu is really essential because they are these uh, central interactions both for a new project but also for big companies and for smes and how uh, the bank can orient them towards new strategies and uh, finally as i was mentioning before for the individuals they are really the actors that can help to shape our future and as thomas was explaining to orient all those entities towards the right future the one we want
1: So in heading towards the future that we want, we've heard before that there's always challenges and opportunities. And many times, the EU is playing a key role in steering green investment. Do you think that the current EU policies support such development?
3: Well, when we think about the private sector finance, We can see that there's this uh, global architecture that is being enforced at the moment since a few years now. And you have to understand that we were really starting from scratch. So there's been the taxonomy regulation that tells uh, which activity is supposed to be sustainable. There's been the corporate uh, disclosure and the due diligence directive that require all the large companies and the big SMEs to publish information and that also make them accountable for this information. So that's not just greenwashing. And finally, the capital requirement directive that touches on the banking side. So we can think, okay, there's this uh, global architecture and it's going in the right direction. And of course, it's been a a great and very intense years of work. But however, what we see is that um, the objectives of the law, there's still many lack of coherence regarding the science-based evidence, because sometimes the compromise that uh, we've um, touched upon are are more politically based and not really science-based. And we also think that the rhythm of implementation of those directives is very, very slow. And it's too slow compared to the rhythm of climate change. And final point is that um, all this architecture of flow is still at a very disclosure level. So basically, if you publish some information that are more communication or greenwashing, nothing really big will happen to you. At least so far, we haven't seen big sanctions. And we think there's a way to go uh, much deeper. And on
2: the public finance side, what we see is first that the EU is making big promises on climate investment. And that's something that is not new. The EU, every seven years, debates its long-term budget, something that in Brussels, they call the multi-annual financial framework. And that's essentially how the EU is going to spend one trillion euros of public money over the next seven years. And even 10 years ago, climate was already a big, point of discussion of the EU public investment. And during the 2013 debate, they chose to say that at least 20% of all the EU money, uh, public money spent, should be climate investment. And that's a big promise. And that money needed to be spent between 2014 and 2020. So now we've got actually some experience on how that money was spent. And the European Commission was, um, I mean, it's very good at patting itself on the back, that's something Brussels are very good at, uh, and they said, yay, we actually overshot the 20% target, we even 21% of all the EU budget was invested on climate. And if you look at, at it and take that commission communication at face value, you could say, yeah, good. Well, actually, uh, if you dig a little bit into the numbers, which is something the European Court of Auditors did, and that's an official institution, they found out that actually it was not 21%, but 14%. So actually that the EU clearly underperformed and that the big talk on having a lot of EU public climate investment was, let's say, not as big as the reality Uh, that in reality, much less money was invested on climate and that a lot of money, especially in the agricultural sector that the commission marked as being green investment was clearly not green gray, if not brown, so meaning something that if it's gray, it doesn't really have a negative impact. And if it's brown, it even has a negative impact on climate change. And We still have that ambitious discourse, uh, especially from the European Commission, and that's good. And neither say that it's not going to be 20%, but it's going to be 30% of some EU budget sections, 35% of others, and even 37.5%, to be accurate, of the so-called recovery program, the recovery and Resilience facility that the European Union did to support the economic recovery from the COVID pandemic. And it's too soon to tell exactly, let's say, what is the quantity of that money that was indeed invested on climate. So that's one of the questions, which is, let's say, a quantitative question. But the second question that is equally interesting is the qualitative question, because you can put a lot of quantity of money if the quality of your investment is not there, you won't really have the kind of climate impact you're hoping for. And one thing that we know is that a tool of public funding, in order to have a high quality, needs to do many things, including one of those things is to provide predictability. predictability in order to change the investment done by economic actors, whether those economic actors are you know big global corporates who produce steel, or whether those economic actors are you know families, um, just you know mom and dad and two kids, people who don't have a lot of time <laughs> to spend thinking about future climate investment. And here that's one thing that is really lacking in Europe both at the EU level, but also at the national level is the kind of long-term climate investment plan that provides visibility for the next five years, for the next 10 years, and that clearly say to an economic actor, if you do action A, I'm going to give you that amount of money. So if you produce that quantity of renewable power, of renewable hydrogen, or if you do that level of building renovation, this is the amount of money you can expect from the public sector, whether that's a regional nation or the European Union.
0: So what I'm hearing from both of you is that there's ambition there, but things are happening too slowly, not at a high enough level, and it doesn't have some of the green character that is needed to achieve these climate targets. That must be happening for a reason. So what are some of the biggest challenges that the EU has to get uh, mainstream climate issues going in the financial sector?
3: Um, So for the financial sector, we must look first at the banking sector and maybe second at the financial market. For the banking sector, as I was explaining before, we have the regulation that is slowly coming to be enforced with the capital requirement directive. But even if the regulation is here, what we see is that the supervisor, so both the European Central Bank and the domestic supervisor, so it's a bit the the police for the banks, um, they need to feel confident enough to push the red button and start requesting more from the bank. Because we see that there's a huge gap between what the bank are claiming to do, the fact that they will be net zero that they have joined those banking alliance for net zero and uh, the fact that they are actually in reality still financing new fossil projects and on here there's a huge gap on which we think that the supervisor can really act through uh, different actions but also through sanctions so that's for the banks for the financial market it's a bit harder to tackle and so far the regulation has really more focused on elaborating tools for labeling green instruments. So you will have some green ferns, some green labels, but we don't tackle the financial market as a whole. It's a bit as the same as if you're developing some labels for organic food. So you will reach your local farmer, but you do nothing for tackling the whole agrofood industry. So you're a bit missing the point by really looking at the aspect with a very niche perspective
1: banking sector and financial market. Regulations are shaped and influenced by policymakers. So how can policymakers steer the development of investment in finance? There seems to have been certainly some progress made in terms of regulation. Clearly more is needed. Um, may I ask Tomat, what is your view on how can policymakers ensure that investment and finance related aspects are considered appropriately?
2: Well, there are many things to be done. Um, one of The priority, at least according to our research at the Institute for Climate Economics, is to ensure that we can have uh, public funding that is available with great quality, with a long term view, and that provides predictability to investors. I think here... In Europe can take inspiration from some things that are happening all over the world, but the one that has been the most in recent news over the last two years is the US Inflation Reduction Act. And so the US Inflation Reduction Act was maybe the biggest positive surprise that came from the USA when it came to climate policy. Um, And it's essentially a massive US federal level investment plan in climate for the next 10 years. We don't know exactly how much money the USA is going to spend through the Inflation Reduction Act. Estimates go from anything between 400 billion euros to 1,200 billion euros over the next 10 years of public funding. So that's that's really massive. And so I guess the first lesson we can learn from the Inflation Reduction Act is, well, quantity matters. As some people say in the army, quantity has a quality of its own. So if you do a thing with a lot of quantity, there is a good chance that you get there. But besides that, besides the sheer quantity of the Inflation Reduction Act that would be difficult for us in Europe to replicate because we have a lot of fiscal hoax, a lot of uh, politicians would think that we should not spend more, including on climate, Um, what we can learn for sure and apply in Europe in the current political constraints is really the, the quality of the funding from the Inflation Reduction Act. To give you maybe one specific example, the Inflation Reduction Act says that if you produce one kilogram of renewable hydrogen, you will get a subsidy of three US dollars. And that is applicable for 10 years. And the contract starts when you start producing with your new facility, even if your new facility is being built and is being operational in 2029 or in 2031. And that gives you such a massive level of predictability. And if you put yourself for a second in the feet of a project developer. Let's say you want to produce renewable hydrogen and you can deploy your technologies, your electrolyzers anywhere you want in the world. One comparative advantage that the US funding from the inflation reduction Act gives you is that level of certainty. You know that if you settle your factories in the US, you will get that $3 per kilogram of renewable hydrogen subsidy. And that subsidy is big enough to make a lot of projects already profitable with just that subsidy. And therefore, as a project developer, what you're going to do is not going to wonder for, you know, oh, maybe I should put one factory in Europe and another one in China and another in Japan. You're going to say, oh, well, actually, how can I get a lot of benefit from that subsidy? Can I create a pipeline of projects to make sure that I open one renewable hydrogen facility every six months for the next 10 years? in order to really achieve economies of scale. And that, to me, is really a promising development. And from the data that we have from the Rhodium Group, we already see a lot of projects, especially for batteries, for solar panels, and also for green hydrogen being now announced to be deployed in the U.S. for the coming years thanks to that level of predictability of public support that the Inflation Reduction Act gives. So to me, we should really, really think hard as Europeans about... Can we achieve that level of predictability? Do we really want to? And if we manage to do this either before or after the European elections of June the 9th, 2024, then that could definitely be a game changer for our economy. So Thomas
0: took us on an interesting trip across the Atlantic there to take a look at what's uh, some very interesting developments in the United States. Let's go back to Europe now. Um, Julie, what do you see as some of the core instruments here that can be put in place?
3: Uh, so if we go back to the European Union context, to tackle the financial actors is really about tackling the banks because it's the main uh, financial actor. And um, to mobilize financial resources, uh, we think that the transition plan for banks and especially prudential transition plan is really uh, one of the core instruments that we did some research on. And the uh, transition plans for banks is really having this roadmap for banks, the fact that they need to have this plan for how they will reach the transition by 2050, how they will become net zero. But it's not only because the banks have starting to think about it already, but uh, it has always been with uh, doing a bit less uh, fossil fuel project and maybe a bit more uh, renewable project, but um When we think about a transition plan is really the fact that they need to have this global plan in mind, sector by sector, not just focusing on renewables or focusing on electric car, but really understanding that the transition concerns the entire economy and uh, all their activity, all their clients and uh, having these long-term objectives, but also broken down in uh, interim targets, because the banks have often committed to long-term targets. But when we explain to them that they need to act uh, starting from now, uh, or in the two, three years, and not just in 20 or 30 years, it's a bit harder for them. And when we talk about prudential transition plan, what we mean is that we just don't need to have this beautiful plan that stays in the strategy and in the communication of the bank, but this plan can be verified by the supervisor, which, as I um, explained before, is the police for the bank. And if this plan is verified, it means that the supervisor can put some sanctions on the banks. And of course, it makes the bank a bit more committed to actually implement its uh, transition plan. So that's for the tool uh, we focus on. And we did a case study on this tool and we compared it to what's actually in place, which is the voluntary commitment. So all these global alliance of banks claiming that they will be net zero and that they don't need reg- regulation because they already have this beautiful commitment. And what we've seen is that it's actually very interesting for the bank to implement those plans because first it will protect them from all the financial risk that comes from the climate change because, of course, all the companies will be affected by the climate change, whether it's the physical impact that they will have, so it can be some severe events or rather the transition risk. So the fact that their businesses changes and that they can no longer face the repayment of their loan. So that's the first point. The second point, it's um, having this tool in place. So The prudential transition plan will actually help the bank to increase their contribution to the transition. And as uh, we were explaining before, we really have this financial gap that we need to bridge and the banks are a key actor into that. Because at the moment, the bank have a uh, focus on a few sectors, but there's many, many other sectors that are concerned by the transitions. It can be agriculture. It can be industry. It can be uh, all the consuming goods. Uh, we can see it in fashion also. And finally, what's really important is that um, by having this transition plan uh, at a prudential level, it gives some tools to the supervisor to act. For example, it can ask the bank to make some changes in this structure. If the director or if the board is not uh, aware enough of uh, climate aspect or if the um, the teams are actually uh, incentivized uh, to do always more and more uh, deals in the oil sector, for them it's really hard to implement the transition plan, of course, because it means giving up on their salaries. Uh, so here the supervisor can uh, check the global coherence of the banks and make sure that the entire bank is really designed to implement the transition transition plan. Because in the way the banks are actually designed, of course, they are more focused on profit and their teams are not trained to integrate some climate aspects.
0: Uh, Julie, you mentioned that prudential plans are ones that can be verified by the supervisor. Um, just to make that a bit more concrete, what are some really specific things that the supervisor might look at? What are they really verifying then in a transition plan?
3: Yeah. Um, they can firstly verify the coherence and the robustness of the plan. So if the objectives are really, um, backed by science. What is more interesting is that they can really touch upon the structure of the bank. So if the um, climate-related risks are really taken upon at the right level, so they just don't stay at the communication level, but they're really uh, taken at the department level, they can also check that uh, the people are fit and proper, that they are well-trained, because we know that there's a huge difference. For example, uh, if you're a small SMEs and you come and say, my energy bill uh, are super high, no, I can't pay, and it to change all my equipment and it will help me. Of course, if your banker is trained regarding climate aspect, it will more help you than someone who knows nothing about that and don't understand the need for investment into that. And um, we need all the banking teams to be trained, not just in the CSR department, but at the top level, but also at the very front officer level. So that's some example that the supervisor can play. They can also act on the remuneration side, as I mentioned, to make sure that all the remuneration are coherent with the transition plan. And of course, if needed, they can ask to limit some investment in some sectors. And uh, many think tanks and NGOs are um, trying to push the supervisor to restrain the banks to invest too much in the fossil fuel sector. And finally, they can put sanctions If the bank produce a transition plan, but don't implement it, or if it's not uh, sufficient enough. And the European Central Bank has already started to put some sanctions on some banks based on climate change and the fact that the bank was not on track for the transition.
1: Wow, it sounds like the transition plans is a really effective tool.
3: We hope so. Uh, We are still at the beginning of the process. So we will see uh, happening with the trilogue if we come up with some ambitious transition plan or if we come up with a political compromise that is weakened. But if the EU settle on an ambitious compromise, then yes, we think that it's a really powerful tool for transformation.
0: So go ahead. Jump in on
2: as if one more thing to add from the international side. Yeah. On the international side, if we look at public finance, uh, one thing that is interesting that comes from Japan is their green transformation program. What they want to do with the public money is not that novel, but it's really the way they want to fund the transformation of the economy that is. So essentially, the Japanese idea is to say, let's borrow money on the market now through green bonds. And so they are issuing around 140 billion euros in green bonds, which is a very, very massive green bond issue. Um, And they're going to provide that money in the form of subsidies, or at least part of it in the form of subsidies, to ensure the Japanese industry can decarbonize. And so it focuses a lot on the steel sector, uh, because Japan still relies a lot on coal in order to produce steel and wants, obviously, to retain a steel industry. What is novel is the policy mix. So they're kind of saying, okay, we're going to give you a big carrot now. uh, So a lot of money to decarbonize and to invest in the decarbonization of your industry. But by the way, the way we're going to pay back that money that we bought on the market will be through the organization on the carbon price that you will have to pay if you do not decarbonize. And so you see here the policy mix that is quite innovative. So the Japanese state borrows money now to provide a big carrot to in the industry and says to that industry, by the way, there is a big stick that is coming. There is this Japanese carbon market that we will establish and that Japanese carbon market will do several things, including increasing the cost of pollution and generating revenues for the Japanese state to pay back the debt that they well created. Uh, while borrowing. And to me, that's an interesting policy mix. We, we can't really apply it to Europe just now because in Europe we already have a carbon market, while in Japan they are creating one. But we could take inspiration with that kind of approach. You give to economic actors, whether those are heavy industries or households, you give them now public support so they can change, and you want them. That if they don't change, if they don't seize that opportunity to invest in the coming years, they will have to pay a hefty price, and that price would be a carbon price in the future. And that can lead you to a more interesting discussion on how can you provide different sort, or let's say a portfolio of incentives for all economic actors from the heavy industry to the household in order to make sure that everyone has the capacity to invest and also is pushed to do the kind of climate investment we need them to do.
0: So what I'm hearing is the carrot sounds very real, but is the stick already real or is that uh, still theoretical in the Japan context?
2: Well, it's under discussion. But if you combine those two, essentially what changes is the position of the budget ministry. And so <laughs> the budget ministry is very powerful in Japan, as it is in any democracy. Um, and suddenly you have a ministry that is very powerful and that really wants to pay the debt back. So that's part of a deal, essentially, inside Japan. That, that is also, I mean, the philosophy of that deal is also something we could have in Europe, uh, either at the level of a member state of the European Union, say Germany or Italy or Slovakia, or directly at the EU level. But obviously, you, you need to make sure uh, that the, the stick that is there, not only to provide an economic incentive to, so polluters pay more for pollution and therefore have an invested interest in polluting less, but also to make sure you got the money that you got the money to pay back the debt, uh, because obviously what we want to achieve collectively in 30 years is to have no climate debt, but also a manageable public financial debt.
1: Thank you for those great insights. We switch gears for a moment and take the perspective that looking forward, there still seems to be a lot to do relating to investment in finance. What are your key messages to policymakers? What should they focus on?
3: So for the banking sector, we really have this window of opportunity with the capital requirement directive that is being negotiated at the moment. So I think for policymakers, it's really the moment to set an ambitious standard for banks because the window will uh, only reopen in uh, eight years. So now is the time. And after this directive will be finally adopted, there'll be the moment of implementation. And here, uh, there's a role to play for the European Banking Agency, the EBA, with the determination of all the details and all the specifics. And finally, uh, for the supervisor level, as I was explaining, even if the regulation is already in place, the supervisors need to feel confident enough. And so for us, it will also be an important moment. And Thomas?
2: Well... I think one element that is key if we look forward is obviously the next elections we're going to have at the EU level. So we have those elections that are coming up on June the 9th, 2024. And there are a lot of debates, obviously, about what should be the political priorities for the next European Commission, for the next European Parliament. That's a debate that is obviously triggering politicians because a lot of them want to be re-elected. And if you want to be re-elected, you need to have a policy platform, a program, a promise for the future that you present to citizens. And I think it will make sense for virtually all politicians to start discussing a bit more the issue of climate investments. If we look a little bit about what has been done in Europe over the last five years, um, essentially, the first thing that happened is that in 2019, climate became the number one priority for policy action at the EU level, the number one priority, more important than, you know, defense, migration, all the other topics that are also extremely salient. But that was achieved. Now, clearly, climate is one central topic of policy discussion at the highest level all over Europe. And then, obviously, besides talking about climate, you need to act. And the EU has essentially three main levers in order to enact climate action. Uh, The first one is carbon pricing. The second one is regulation. The third one is public finance. If we look first at carbon pricing, the EU did a lot. During the last five years, the level of the price quadrupled in Europe. We went from around 20 euros per ton to around 80 euros per ton. And the scope, the future scope that is covered by the EU ETS, the EU carbon market, also quadrupled. Because for now, the only players that are really playing the carbon price fully are electricity generation companies. The heavy industry is legally under the EU carbon market, but gets allowances for free, and therefore the carbon price is muted. That will end slowly but surely between 2026 and 2034. And the European Parliament and the Council of the EU recently decided to create a new carbon market, the so-called ETS2, in order to cover new sectors like buildings and road transportation. So the scope of carbon pricing also almost quadruple, and it will be difficult to see what more you can do during the next mandate unless you want to put also a carbon price on food, which could be quite a divisive issue. So on carbon price you already did a lot. On regulation, The EU did a lot. It can do more, especially on the regulations on banks and private finance sector. But you see that there is little appetite on the side of politicians. You've heard, for instance, the Belgian prime minister, Alexandre de Croix. You heard the French president, Emmanuel Macron. You also heard the leader of the biggest party in the European Parliament, the centre-right EPP, Manfred Weber, essentially calling for what they named in some ways a regulatory pose. So like to put on hold EU climate Regulations, so there is little appetite to do more on regulation, and so therefore, if you've done everything you could do on carbon pricing, and if you don't want to do more regulation, you kind of need to focus on the third lever, which is public finance, public investment, and so to me, it would be very useful to have um, a serious debate on: Do we want to put our money where our mouth is? Do we want to have a long-term EU climate investment plan that both from a quantitative perspective, so the um, amount of money you put, but also from a qualitative perspective, the predictability of the financial instruments that you design is a plan that can be the next chapter of the European Green Deal. If you want the added element that still needs to be built and that will provide the kind of support the real economy needs in order to make sure that all economic actors from families to big industries can actually invest now, not only to reduce the climate impact, but also to shield themselves from future high carbon prices or from volatile fossil fuel prices that we've been experiencing for the last 2 years and also for them to do the kind of investment that the regulations compel them to do in the near future so to me that should really be the next big topic and we need to have a serious discussion on this among the questions that need answering and that needs you know a political choice or political call to be made is um How much money, for instance, do you expect from the EU, from the member states, or from the private sector? And that's a political choice. You can try to bet a lot on EU-level public money, but you could also say that when it comes to public money, it should be mostly national. But then you need to have an idea on how you can make sure that Germany is not going to outspend everyone, uh, that there will be uh, enough money in the public coffers of Estonia and Slovenia and Italy for them also to, to be able to invest. And to what extent you want to rely on the private sector. And if you do choose to rely on the private sector, what are the six that you put on the private sector to act without additional public subsidies. So that's a massive political question that can't be answered by people like Julie and I. They can't be answered by experts. They need to be answered by politicians presenting a policy platform in front of citizens and citizens therefore having a direct say on this. Another very political question is what kind of risk sharing and profit sharing do you want between public investment and private investment? Do you want, as the old saying goes, Do you want to privatize profits and collectivize losses, which is one political option? Or do you want something where if a company does very well, you have a system that makes sure that that company that did well, thanks to public funding, also kind of gives back to the public funder, whether that's the EU or whether that's the member state. And finally, (laughs) uh, one big question would be, how do you fund all this? If you want more public money to be put on the table, you need to fund this. Do you fund this by using more debt? Do you fund this by using more taxation in the present? Who should pay those taxes? Should it be rich people, middle class people, poor people? Should it be specific kind of industries and not others? All those are highly political questions. And I think we need to start having a serious debate on all those questions to make sure that politicians will be seeking election on June the 9th, before June the 9th, presents quite a concrete plan and that citizens can assess those plans and, you know, that those plans will change some of the votes of people. And in a democracy that would give some say to the 300 million Europeans that are likely to go vote on June the 9th. And then after the election, we will have a process of A new president of the European Commission being appointed by the European Council, that president of the Commission will seek to be elected by the European Parliament. And therefore, our representative, our directly elected representative, the members of the European Parliament, will be able to make sure that the promises from the campaign actually lend on some concrete reforms that can happen at the EU level, including concrete EU-level public investment that hopefully will give to everyone in Europe the financial capacity to invest in their own transition.
0: Well, we started out the discussion today with an emphasis on the investments made today really lock in a future. So it's important to invest now. And in this final point here that there's still a lot of open questions to resolve and some political will to develop before that investment takes place. Thanks both of you for taking time to speak with us today. Thank you Julie and Thomas for joining us today on the podcast. It's been a very interesting discussion and uh, look forward to seeing how the politics develops over the coming
2: year. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you for the invitation. Thank you both.
1: I think we had such a great discussion today and it covered so many different things. So let's wrap it up. What are your key takeaways, Erin?
0: Well I think one thing that came out was this idea of gaps that uh, and there were really two kinds that they spoke about one was a quantitative gap in terms of the amount of investment being too slow and and not uh, nearly the in the the very high volumes that we they talked about and the other was this qualitative gap in terms of the greenwashing aspect so the two kinds of gaps to be filled Another aspect I thought was really interesting was, you know, the way Thomas laid out, you know, he talked about three levers, basically, one being carbon pricing, which was largely in place, another being regulation, which uh, he said there was not much appetite for, and then really pointed to public finance as an area that where we needed to give attention to and you know, give it attention because the investments now are going to have such an important role in shaping the future course of things. Under that uh, title of public finance, there were two key principles that really came out for me. One was the importance of predictability for the banks in terms of the investment environment, the regulatory environment for them to be acting as economic actors. And then from the side of the regulator, this idea of the verifiability what banks were actually saying that planned to undertake is something that was going to happen. And so in that sense, moving from a, sort of this voluntary commitment phase to something that where it's a more binding framework. So those were my key takeaways. What about you, Bradley?
1: Absolutely. I, I think one reoccurring theme that we've seen throughout all of the podcasts is the need for acceleration on all things climate. Every topic that we've had, we need to go faster. And I think we saw that again today. And I guess one surprising aspect for me were the international examples. Normally, the EU is such a a leader in the climate world. It was very interesting to hear about the example of the United States and Japan and their policy mixes that were ensuring some predictability and that they were going to be long-term and secure in that sense, as well as really going back to basics with carrot and stick for these policies was very interesting. And I think there are examples that the EU could aspire to for effectiveness. The other big area which really caught my attention was elections coming up on June 9th, 2024. So I think it's amazing window of opportunity to put pressure on politicians, to put their money where their mouth is on specific things relating to investment in climate and to really uncover that veil of what do they mean when they say climate finance, what are their specific plans. So a great reminder for everyone to get out there and vote uh, and to see what The politicians really mean when they say they're investing in climate. Next time, we'll be discussing the last key challenge for transformative climate policy identified in the 4i Traction Project, namely integration. Together with us, we'll have Professors Kati Kulovesi from the University of Eastern Finland and Sebastian Oberter from the Brussels School of Governance with a focus on discussing climate policy integration in the EU. So keep an eye out for our next episode. Be sure to subscribe to our Climate On Air Discussing the Future of EU Climate Policy podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Deezer, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. Subscribe, review, and thanks for listening.
0: This podcast is part of the 4i Traction Project, financed by the European Union Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program. For more information, check out our website, www.4i-traction.eu.
1: This podcast is produced by Katri Varis, Ricardo Faber, Chiara Mazzetti, Bradley Martzagala, and Aaron Best. Sound design by Lena Apley, graphic and web design by Jennifer Ron and Beata Vilkvargova. Special thanks to Lilian Sala, Nora Kugu, Matthias Duve, and Leon Martini.